Well, thank you so much for uh, coming back on time and um, joining me for the second of my three presentations. If you glance forward on the, uh, the schedule, you'll see that tomorrow after dinner, I'm going to be speaking about George Washington. Um, so my, my coverage of liberty and the American experience kind of has a hole in it, and that hole is the war for independence. And uh, I'm going to sort of uh, pick up where the war for independence ends today, um, but tomorrow night, that will be my focus. So please don't think that I'm, I'm ignoring that. And there's something else important that I don't want to ignore. Uh, there are two birthdays uh, that we're celebrating today. Uh, the first is Matt Davis. The, uh, the second... <laughs> second, uh, little known inconsequential figure named uh, Milton Friedman. Also uh, would be 100 today. So uh, liberty and the American experience is uh, a topic that is certainly relevant to uh, our discussions this week. And it's, it's something that I think uh, when we think about how America has endeavored to secure its liberty, uh, we do it sometimes paradoxically through government and uh, coming up with a plan for government that will protect the liberty that government is supposed to secure without creating a government that will actually pose a threat to that liberty. What a conundrum. What a classic dilemma. And it's one that the revolutionary generation never became completely convinced it had gotten right. And it's worth noting that there was a great deal of experimentation in 1776, when the United States declared their independence, each one of those 13 colonies, when it became a state, drafted for itself a new constitution, a new frame of government. And all of those state constitutions were different. And when they came together and drafted the Articles of Confederation, that too was an experiment. And in 1776, as you would imagine, they erred on the side of not having powerful executives. They erred on the side of not giving their legislatures broad taxing powers. They erred on the side of constraining government to the greatest degree possible. And yet, in 1776, they had a huge crisis to deal with. They were fighting a war against the world's greatest superpower. They had to create an army that would defend liberty, but not as so many armies had in the past, pose a threat to the liberty it had been raised to defend. They had to come up with a government that was powerful enough to marshal their forces on the battlefield and win this war, but not so powerful as to overawe the people for whom the war was being fought. I mean, a real classic conundrum. And during the course of the war and in the years that followed, people began to think that maybe they didn't get it right. Maybe the Articles of Confederation, maybe the state constitutions as well needed to be reformed. Maybe they needed to be tweaked to give the government more powers. And really, the Constitution of 1787 uh, is an example of that sort of transformation. The pendulum swung uh, back in the direction of giving the government more authority, and yet the purpose wasn't to take liberty away from the people. The purpose was to have a government that was strong enough 
to be able to secure the people's liberty. And this was a, a real sincere debate, a real sincere argument. When we think about the Federalists of the 1780s and the Anti-Federalists of the 1780s, the questions they raised, the arguments that they had, the debates that they entertained are classic, important debates that we, I mean, good, liberty-loving people like us, could still have today, and I think are still having this week. So it's, uh, it was with no small amount of trepidation that the Constitution was ratified. And uh, it's with no small degree of interest that we should take note that some of the people who were very much involved in the ratification or the implementation of the Constitution had different views of what it actually meant. And, uh, you know, we should be humble about our own uh, desire to interpret the Constitution and figure out what it meant, um, within limits, obviously. Uh, I, think it, I think it generally should mean what it says. But when you think about the fact that people like James Madison there in the center, or Alexander Hamilton there on the left, I mean, these two guys were the Batman and Robin of the Constitutional Convention. These two guys with John Jay wrote the Federalist Papers, explaining what the Constitution meant, primarily to the people of New York, um, but of course broadly to the people of the United States, as well as the people of the future. These two people, Madison and Hamilton, who thought that they were entirely simpatico on the meeting of the Constitution, as soon as it was, as, as it was ratified, as soon as it came time to implement it, began to disagree. And of course, that is when, during the administration of President uh, George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson came back onto the scene. Thomas Jefferson had been our ambassador to France, uh, and James Madison had uh, entertained a, a long correspondence with him during the course of the uh, Constitutional Convention, during the course of the ratifying debates, um, they exchanged a series of, of, of letters. They're really uh, inspiring and edifying. Jefferson was very enthusiastic about the Constitution. Um, the, the Federalists of the 1790s, the Hamiltonians, did a tricky thing when they gave themselves that name Federalists. They intentionally wanted you to think that Thomas Jefferson and his followers were anti-Federalists. They weren't. In the 1780s, Thomas Jefferson was on the side of ratifying the Constitution. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have problems with it. Uh, he thought, for example, that the president should not be perpetually reelectable. Um, he thought also that the Constitution must have a Bill of Rights. And I think it was one of Jefferson's greatest achievements that he was able to help convince James Madison that that was a good idea and that a Bill of Rights should be attached to this framing document. When Jefferson returned, of course, he returned as George Washington's Secretary of State, Washington being the first president. Alexander Hamilton, um, who was Washington's aide um, during the, the course of the American Revolution, was uh, George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury. And these two men, these two really great thinkers, um, would succeed in having a debate throughout the course of Washington's presidency about how the Constitution should be read, about how it should be interpreted, about what those words actually meant. And James Madison, who was essentially the leader of the House of Representatives, certainly the intellectual leader, 
and I think certainly, too, the most important political leader within the House of Representatives. He was an important player as well. And uh, Alexander Hamilton, he, uh, he was really beside himself when um, they started to disagree. It was almost as if uh, they were in seventh or eighth grade, and this kid Tom had been off in France for the summer, and um, Alex and Jim, they were like the best friends, you know? They were uh, hanging out all the time, but as soon as the school year began and Tom came back for vacation, James and Tom, they would eat together in the cafeteria, and poor Alexander was left sitting all by himself. He wrote a letter, uh, in all seriousness, Hamilton did, to a man named Edward Harrington, uh, Carrington in, in 1792, where he essentially says this, that, that, that Jefferson had returned and cast his spell over Madison. Jefferson had returned and sucked Madison into his orbit. That was the only way that, that Hamilton could make sense of what changed Madison's mind from his perspective. From Madison's perspective, his own mind hadn't changed. It was Hamilton who had changed. Hamilton, with whom he had been corresponding, Hamilton, with whom he had been speaking, Hamilton, with whom he thought he was in complete agreement on the Constitution. Suddenly, Hamilton, as Treasury of the, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, suddenly Hamilton started to distort what the Constitution meant. Either Hamilton, in the 1790s, as Secretary of Treasury, was, was, was lying about what he thought the Constitution meant, or Hamilton in the 1780s, during the Constitutional Convention, in the period of ratification, had been lying to Madison about what he really believed. Madison felt a real palpable sense of personal betrayal and really started to question Alexander Hamilton's character. And, of course, uh, George Washington tried to stay above this when Alexander Hamilton started to uh, read into the Constitution a number of powers that the Constitution didn't explicitly give to the national government. For example, Hamilton said that you could sort of read between the lines of the Constitution and uh, see that it was the vibe of the thing, the spirit of the thing, that we should be able to have a national bank. And Madison, when he heard this, was just beside himself because the issue of creating a national bank had been raised at the Constitutional Convention. It had been discussed, and the delegates there explicitly decided not to include it in the framing document, not to include it in the Constitution, not to give the national government the power to, to create such an institution. So as far as Madison was concerned, Alexander Hamilton was trouble, right? He was, he was bad news. And, and this is the first real warning sign that under this document, which was designed not only to be a license to power, but also a restraining order, not only to say what the national government could do, but to make clear what the national government could not do, that, that this piece of parchment would be interpreted and misinterpreted and stretched beyond its original meaning to the detriment of American liberty. And George Washington, you, ha you have to feel sorry for this man 
Um, you know, he had intentionally selected a diverse group of thinkers. Um, he brought back not only uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, uh, but he kept uh, as, as close advisors um, people like James Madison. Of course, his vice president was John Adams. I mean, this is a stellar group of thinkers, all patriots, all wanting uh, what was best for America in their own views. And yet, this is a group that divided pretty quickly. Um, Washington wanted to stay above party. One of the things that the Constitution didn't imagine was that there would be permanent political parties in America. Washington thought that, that partisanship was, was really uh, fairly, fairly dangerous and really fairly dumb. Because while it was fine for two people to disagree about one specific issue, isn't it strange that they should disagree about all issues? Washington, his prime concern was preserving this union that had been created. And to, so to see great men like Hamilton and Adams on the Federalist side, or Jefferson and Madison on the side of the Republicans, um, split and, uh, and, and, and really begin to uh, fight amongst one another was for George Washington a disturbing sort of development. And he tried to remain above it. But Washington can only hang on for so long. And of course, after two terms in 1797, Washington stepped down from the presidency. Uh, in 1796, there was an election with uh, John Adams as the Federalist candidate and Thomas Jefferson as the Republican candidate. And in this election, John Adams won a narrow victory. And under the rules of the Constitution at the time, Jefferson became his vice president. This was a vice presidency um, that was probably among the most inconsequential in American history. Jefferson wasn't consulted. Um, he didn't really participate. He spent his time sitting in the Senate um, where you know, he was constitutionally authorized to preside. And if anything, rather than working with this administration, he worked against it because he considered the, uh, the direction that Adams took the country to be extremely dangerous. Uh, Jefferson described uh, Adams's presidency as the reign of witches. Really little ambiguity in that statement. And four years later, there's a rematch. Four years later, the sitting vice president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, is held up as a candidate against the sitting president of the United States, John Adams. And by this point, John Adams, um, uh, in, in some ways a really admirable, but in other ways a really tragic figure, had succeeded um, in alienating not only the Jeffersonian Republicans, but also his own Federalists. During the course of Adams's presidency, uh, Britain and France uh, began to uh, continue their conflicts. During the course of Adams's presidency, France especially began to harass American shipping on the high seas. Adams, uh, to I think his great credit, wanted to avoid a war with France that could cost America not only the lives uh, of, its, of its young men, not only a great deal of our fortune, um, but also quite possibly our independence. If we lost in a war to France, we might lose our independence to France. If we won a war against France, we might still lose our independence, not to France, but to Britain into whose arms we would have to run for, for protection. Um, so this alliance that, that would be caused would, would um, 
bring us back into the orbit um, of the British Empire. He wanted neither of these things. And yet, the Federalists were clamoring for some sort of war, some sort of decisive action at the very least. And so, as a preparedness measure, Adams signed into law the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. I mean, just seven years after the Bill of Rights had been ratified, just seven years after, in what I think you'll agree, is not a particularly ambiguous statement. In the First Amendment, it was written that Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of the press. Congress made a law making it possible to send publishers or editors or writers to jail. And some went to jail for criticizing the national government and its officers. This is a, a really dangerous sort of development when you think about it. I mean, Hamilton, I suppose, could argue that the National Bank was allowed by the Constitution. It's very difficult to, to, to stretch your, your logic to the point where you can argue that the, the Alien and Sedition Acts, especially the Sedition Act, were um, allowed under the First Amendment. And so this certainly um, outraged the Jeffersonian Republicans. But the fact that, that John Adams then turned around and was able to come to a peaceful resolution with France, throwing away what would have been his greatest issue in the election of 1800, because, of course, Thomas Jefferson had our, been our ambassador there, and he, in the public mind, was identified with France. How crippling that would have been to be identified in a presidential election with a nation with which we're at war. Adams, however, did what he thought was right for the country. He called it the most proud, the most disinterested act of my life. And it probably was. And that's a life full of disinterested acts full of acts that were selfless. And in the election of 1800, even Adams's own Federalists would rather talk about how bad Thomas Jefferson was than make a case for how good John Adams was. Rather than, than, than running a campaign of Adams versus Jefferson, the Federalists tried to, to run a campaign of Jefferson versus George Washington. Washington, of course, in December of 1799, had died at Mount Vernon. Washington's popularity uh, had never been greater, had never been uh, uh, more passionately felt. And uh, you know, who could compare to George Washington? Certainly not Thomas Jefferson, as far as the Federalists were concerned. If you look at these uh, images, as you are called upon to do, look on this picture and on this. Washington, uh, you know, he's never looked better. Thomas Jefferson, however, looks like uh, he's a carny who just woke up behind a dumpster. <laughs> beneath, beneath George Washington, you see that he is supported um, by order, law, and religion. Jefferson, however, beneath him has a stack of incendiary books by radical thinkers like Tom Paine and Condorcet and Voltaire. You have uh, underneath George Washington, the Federal Eagle, and I think they were giving something away here, the British Lion. Beneath Jefferson, you have a reptile and a serpent. Over, over Washington's head, you have a laurel, you know, beaming out rays of light. Over Jefferson, a snuffed out lamp. 
You know, the choice is clear, the Federalists wanted people to, to believe. And yet the people in 1800 made a very clear and very unambiguous choice. They cast their ballots for Thomas Jefferson and his vice presidential running mate, Aaron Burr. And uh, after the, uh, the Jefferson-Burr electoral vote tie was resolved, because again, the Constitution didn't envision that people would be running for office as a ticket. And because they tied, the uh, election was given to the House of Representatives that had been elected at the height of the quasi-war with France in 1798. And so it was a Federalist House of Representatives that was deciding the election of 1800. When finally, uh, in 1801, the House of Representatives was persuaded to, uh, to give the election to Thomas Jefferson. And, and interestingly, persuaded by whom? Does anyone know who was the person who feverishly started to write to important uh, members of Congress? Alexander Hamilton. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's fantastic. It's thanks to Hamilton that Jefferson becomes president. Because, as Hamilton said, Jefferson has principles with which I disagree. Aaron Burr has no principles whatsoever. <laughs> so Thomas Jefferson, on March 4th, 1801, is inaugurated as president of the United States in what he would later describe as the Revolution of 1800, a peaceful revolution where the people get to return their government to its rightful path. And Jefferson, in his first inaugural address, uh, lays out very clearly what he thinks the national government is supposed to do. And he lists all of the wonderful advantages that America enjoys. And he asks, what's left? What remains to close the circle of our felicities? And he says, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, Thomas Jefferson said, is the sum of good government. And Jefferson worked hard during the course of his presidency to make good on this promise. Jefferson repealed all internal taxes. And yet, at the same time, during the course of his presidency, he was able to pay down one-third of our national debt. Jefferson uh, uh, drastically reduced the federal workforce. Jefferson uh, scaled back Adams's plans for a big ocean-going navy, which Jefferson feared um, would probably get us into more trouble than it would uh, keep us out of. Jefferson uh, worked very hard to try to return America to what he believed to be its rightful constitutional course. And yet, in 1803, Jefferson uh, was given an, a, an incredible opportunity. The opportunity was to purchase all of Louisiana. He had sent to France um, James Monroe and Robert Livingston to negotiate the purchase of New Orleans. And Napoleon had offered for just $15 million all of this land, the heart of this continent, allowing America to double in size and stretch almost from sea to shining sea. For Jefferson, this was uh, an incredible, incredible opportunity for a number of different reasons. The first was 
as Jefferson understood it, America had really been blessed by the fact that it was separated from Europe by the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic was a moat, a moat that kept Europe and its wars and its problems and its corruptions away from the United States. Britain and France, it seemed, were perpetually at war. How wonderful to be insulated from their battles, from their controversies, from their armies and their navies. And yet, what if France were to retain possession of Louisiana? Now, Louisiana had been uh, possessed by Spain. It was about to be transferred to France. France was essentially waiving its right to Louisiana and assigning that right to the United States. What if France had held on to Louisiana? Britain, of course, has Canada. America would be in between these two nations, which were almost perpetually at war. It would be inevitably, Jefferson thought, drawn into conflict between these two great powers. If, if France possesses Louisiana, Jefferson said, we will have to marry ourselves to the British fleet. The same, uh, the same compromise of our independence that John Adams worried about was something that Thomas Jefferson didn't want to have to confront. So from the standpoint of preserving America at peace, the possession of Louisiana was paramount. But it allowed for something else. With uh, the possession of Louisiana, America, a nation that was doubling in population every 20 years, America would retain room to remain a nation of farmers. Jefferson wrote that the purchase of Louisiana would allow Americans to remain farmers for 100 generations. Another instance, after maybe a couple too many bottles of wine, Jefferson wrote, a thousand generations. <laughs> a thousand generations of Americans retaining their fundamentally good character. A thousand generations of Americans who are independent, of Americans who are their own bosses, of Americans who could supply their own needs and the needs of their own families. A thousand generations of Americans who are hard workers. A thousand generations of Americans who, for all the right and best reasons, have a vested interest in promoting and, and, and volunteering for the good of their communities. A thousand generations of Americans who are model, small r, Republican citizens. I mean, this was just fantastic. But if we didn't possess Louisiana, if we didn't gain that land that would give Americans at least the option to become farmers, to become their own bosses, to become self-sufficient, we would start to become packed into cities. Almost as Alexander Hamilton dreamed. Alexander Hamilton, once in a very revealing memorandum to George Washington, um, was speaking about world affairs, and he wrote, with British Canada on our left and Latin America on our right. Given how Hamilton is imagining America and its orientation, where is, where is he looking? What's his orientation? 
Where does Hamilton see America's future? He's looking across the Atlantic. He's looking at Europe. He's looking particularly at England. And that's not a crazy thing. England, of course, if you count out America, is the freest and most prosperous and most powerful nation on the planet. It's not an insane model to follow. But Jefferson, when he saw the future, it wasn't in the East. It wasn't over there. It wasn't in Europe. It was in the West. It was where America could create its own empire of liberty, as he described it, where we could strike out on our own course and do things our way and be shielded from the complications and the corruptions of the old world as we endeavor to create this new one. If we could retain ourselves as this virtuous nation, if we could avoid the corruptions and the temptations, the decadence, the depravity, the, the willingness to trade uh, liberty for wealth or promises of security, if we could avoid those sorts of traps, we could avoid what would inevitably befall such an empire. We could retain our freedom, our liberty, our independence. So what an ideal sort of situation the, the, the purchase of Louisiana presented. What a wonderful prospect. And there was just one problem as far as Jefferson was concerned. It wasn't constitutional. There was nothing in the Constitution that explicitly authorized the national government to add new territory. And this is not a trivial thing. And when you think about what the Constitution was, it is a compact between states. It, in some ways, is a marriage between North and South. I mentioned to a couple of you that uh, my wife and kids are, are with me uh, in town this week. Imagine if I went back to the hotel um, after lunch and uh, Christine was there uh, waiting for me. She opened the door. She had a big smile on her face. And she said, oh, welcome back, honey. I have a surprise for you. And I said, what, what's the surprise? And she turned and she said, meet our new husband, Julio. <laughs> Just as, as, as the Constitution was, was a marriage between the North and the South, by adding Louisiana, you made the United States into this weird sort of menage a trois between North and South and West. And it changes things. It changes the nature of that union. What's going to come of these, the future states that will be carved out of all that land? Will the future residents of Kansas be cod fishermen, like the people of Massachusetts? Or will they be farmers, like the people of Virginia? I mean, this is an important question. This was a matter of great consequence. And this was an issue that Jefferson understood was, was not uh, resolved by anything in the Constitution. And so he resolved to do something about it. I think the right thing. We would amend the Constitution. During the course of the summer of 1803, he drew up two amendments to the Constitution. He showed them to members of his cabinet, his most trusted advisors, Albert Gallatin, and especially his Secretary of State, James Madison, 
looked at these amendments, thought about what could happen. Maybe a sufficient number of states would not ratify them. Maybe it would took, take too long to secure ratification. Maybe France would pull out of the deal. Certainly we knew that Spain didn't like the idea of America possessing all this land to the north of its borders of its American colonial empire. Maybe the deal would fall through. It was just too good to pass up. Madison, almost like one of those little cartoon devils um, perched on Jefferson's shoulder. There he is. <laughs> Madison said, don't do it. Don't float a constitutional amendment. Just ratify this treaty with France. Let the House of Representatives appropriate the money. Let the Senate ratify the treaty and bring this land into the United States. And Jefferson finally uh, relented and decided that this was not a case of choosing um, some sort of benefit over principle. This was a case of principles coming into conflict, a tragic case of principles coming into conflict. And Jefferson swallowed hard. Um, he, in his own mind, violated the Constitution, and Louisiana was added to the United States of America. Of course, as we'll see, Louisiana and the states that would be carved out from it would, in the decades to come, be a source of great controversy for the nation. And the question of whether the West would be more like the North or more like the South, that was one of the questions that endangered the unity of the United States as a whole. The wars, even, that Jefferson hoped Louisiana would prevent, and that war came. Jefferson, in his second term, uh, had to deal with the fact that French and British ships were added again. French and British ships were attacking our ships on the high seas. Jefferson tried an embargo of all foreign trade. He thought that better than going to war, better than putting so much at risk so that the government could essentially subsidize private individuals from trading with other individuals abroad better to just outlaw all trade. Now, he argued that the Constitution gave him such a power, or gave Congress such a power, because it gives Congress the power to regulate trade. But does regulate mean abolish all? That's what Jefferson said it meant, when between 1807 and 1809, we sustained an embargo. An embargo that ultimately proved politically unpopular, an embargo that ultimately, uh, during the administration of Jefferson's successor, his best friend, James Madison, would uh, be transformed and finally abandoned in preference for actual war. The War of 1812 with Great Britain again put America at risk. I think it's worth pointing out, however, that James Madison, unlike John Adams, who violated the Constitution and violated American civil liberties during the quasi-war with France, James Madison in this real war with Great Britain 
a real war in which British troops actually really invaded the territory of the United States, where they marched through Washington, D.C., where they burned down his house. Even in this sort of situation, even with Federalists in New England whispering about secession, James Madison never violated anybody's civil liberties in the course of the war for 1812. He certainly deserves kudos for that. The War of 1812 would unleash a whole bunch of different changes. And uh, the old men of the Revolution by this point were sometimes, uh, sometimes puzzled by what the world was becoming around them. Jefferson back at Monticello, John Adams up at Quincy, Massachusetts, these two venerable patriots, the wonder twins of the Continental Congress, Jefferson, the pen of independence. John Adams, the mouth of independence. These two men resumed a friendship that had been strained by partisanship in the 1790s and began to write letters back and forth, explaining themselves to one another. They began to touch all the subjects that, that you're supposed to not talk about, religion and politics and history and the future. And you get the sense when you read the correspondence between Jefferson and John Adams that they're writing not only to each other, but also to us, that they're recording their thoughts for posterity. But while the future generations may have been on their minds, oftentimes the subject of the rising generation came up. And uh, as, as, as many people find, there was a generation gap between them and the, the, the new people who were rising up to take their place. Jefferson once complained about a new generation whom we know not and who knows not us. And Adams once wrote, once wrote to Thomas Jefferson that to the new generation, he had but one message. Get off my lawn! Sorry. But seriously, Adams and, and Jefferson were witnessing a profound transformation as America began to in, in, engage in the early phases of the market revolution. The world was, in many respects, fundamentally new, fundamentally different. Jefferson and Adams in many ways embraced those changes. In many ways, they were quite optimistic about America's future. And in many ways, they thought that America's future would be safeguarded by the example that they had set in the past. And the past was receding very quickly. By 1826, it had been 50 years since the Declaration of Independence. And Thomas Jefferson, in the spring of 1826, as his health began to wane, as he began to quip that he had one foot in the grave and the other uplifted to follow, Jefferson began to express a wish that he would live to see July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of American independence. And as June rolled around, his health faltered. And by the end of the month, he was on his deathbed. 
and the men who were gathered in the room to attend to him, his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, his grandson-in-law, Nicholas P. Trist, and his, his doctor, uh, a medical professor who Jefferson had hired to teach medicine at his new University of Virginia. They were all there. And Jefferson, according to Dunglison's notes, kept coming to and asking, is it the fourth? And they felt so awful because they had to keep disappointing him. Jefferson asked on the first, is it the fourth? No. He asked again on the second, is it the fourth? Not yet. By the third, it seemed he could go at any moment. His voice was barely a whisper. Is it the fourth? Not yet. Again around 11 p.m. on July 3rd, he turned to Nicholas P. Trist. Is it the fourth? And Trist said he just couldn't bear to let the man down. He could go at any moment. And Trist turned to him and he, and he nodded. He said, yes. And according to Trist, this expression came over Jefferson's face that he read as exactly as I wished. And a lot of historians uh, have gotten the story wrong. They've said that is it the fourth were Jefferson's last words. But if you read the notes of Dr. Dunglison, you could see that he then turns to offer Jefferson another dose of what they believe to be life-sustaining medication. And Jefferson responds by turning to Dunglison, having been assured that it was, in fact, the 4th of July. Jefferson turns to Dunglison and says, no doctor, nothing more. And what a terrible story this would be if then, at 11 p.m., July 3rd, 1826, Jefferson died. But he didn't die. He lived. He lived another 12 hours. Thomas Jefferson died at noon on July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the hour after the Continental Congress ratified the Declaration of American Independence. Meanwhile, up at Quincy, Massachusetts, unbeknownst to anyone down in Virginia, John Adams is also on his deathbed. Around 5 p.m., according to his son, John Adams said his last words. Jefferson still survives. Adams died at 5 p.m., 50 years to the hour after John Nixon, the sheriff of Philadelphia, first publicly proclaimed the independence of the United States from the uh, State House yard. And I'd like to think that at that moment, Thomas Jefferson lifted skyward on the wings of angels, hearing Adams's last final pronouncement, was laughing his butt off, realizing that once again, he had proven John Adams wrong. <laughs> and, and yet, in another sense, of course, I'd like to think that John Adams was right that Jefferson did still survive, that the ideas of the American Revolution still survived, even though this was a rapidly changing world. News of the Declaration of Independence had reached Boston in 1776 on horseback. News of Jefferson's death 
reached Boston in 1826 by steamboat. When Jefferson was laid to rest at Monticello, the students from the University of Virginia walked up the hill, stood around the grave, peered down toward the casket of this fallen pillar of the Enlightenment. And among them was a, a young man who would end up not graduating from the University of Virginia. He would later enroll at West Point. He would end up not graduating from the United States Military Academy. But he would end up being recognized as perhaps America's greatest romantic poet. Who am I talking about? Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, talk about two different men of two different generations. Edgar Allan Poe at the funeral of Thomas Jefferson. Meanwhile, up in Massachusetts, when John Adams was laid to rest, the local band of dignitaries who were present immediately afterwards walked to a ribbon-cutting ceremony to open officially the first stretch of railroad track in America, connecting the Quincy, Massachusetts quarry with the future site of the Bunker Hill Monument. It seemed wherever you looked, there were signs of change. Wherever you looked, there were portents that we were entering into a brave new world. America was entering into what historians would call the market revolution, a time of unprecedented economic growth, a time of dynamic change, a time of new opportunities, a time of, of, of greatly increased prosperity. A number of things made this possible. You have in, enhancements in transportation, for example, such as the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal uh, stretched 364 miles from Albany to Buffalo, New York. It essentially connected the Great Lakes with the Hudson River and New York City and the Atlantic Ocean and the rest of the world. The interior regions of America, which previous generations had called the back country, this backwater that was inaccessible to trade, because once you went past the fall line, the rivers ceased to be navigable. Thanks to canals, the back country was now referred to as the frontier. It was where people looked for the future. The cost of transportation dropped dramatically. Before the Erie Canal, it cost 19 cents a mile to ship a ton of goods. After the Erie Canal, it was three cents a mile. Eventually, on the Erie Canal, it would be just one cent per mile. And of course, the speed of transportation between Buffalo and Albany increased fivefold. I mean, think of what that made possible, not only for the people of the interior, but also for the people in places like New York City. New York City had, had never really been a metropolis as we would understand it because metropolises didn't exist as we understand them. At the time of independence, Philadelphia was the second largest English-speaking city on the planet, and it had 30,000 people. Because you just couldn't get too big. You, you needed to bring firewood in. You needed to bring in food. Once you started transporting those things across distances that were too great, they became too expensive, or the food would spoil. But now with the Erie Canal, people from New York could eat apples that were grown in, in orchards 
around the Finger Lakes. Now with the Erie Canal, people around the Great Lakes could wear dresses that had been made in France. As the area where people were able to practically trade increased, competition increased, people were able to specialize, they were able to do what they were good at, they were able to, uh, to, to stop being semi-subsistent farmers, and in increasing numbers, specialize in particular trades or crafts or occupations. As Americans became more interconnected, prices dropped, the standard of living increased, people began to live longer, people began to grow taller. And of course, it's not just canals, you have steamboats as well. If you were a cadet at West Point in 1807, you would have been mustering on the parade ground and you would have looked off into the distance, off where you knew the Hudson River was, although it's down sort of a cliff and it wasn't visible from their perspective, and you would have seen smoke rising from the Hudson River. What's this, they thought. They rushed over to the edge, they, they peered down, and they saw this amazing craft, this ship that was without sail, going upstream. It was Robert Fulton's Claremont a steamboat that conquered the, the number one most vexing problem of river navigation. Rivers were great when you were going with the current. They were, they were tough when you were going against it. For the steamboat to go from New Orleans to St. Louis would take 90 days. After the steamboat, it took three weeks. And just as the Erie Canal had done, and just as railroads would do, it dropped the cost of transportation, it increased the speed of transportation, and it widened the market within which Americans could operate. All of these great advancements of the market revolution, all of this specialization led to great wealth, prosperity, and, and not to be missed, it led to great choices for Americans. I mean, it had been the case, as Steve pointed out so aptly yesterday, for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If you ask someone what at that point would have been a silly question, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a silly question because for almost all of humanity, you know the answer. What are you going to be when you grow up? You're going to be a farmer, just like your parents, and their 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 parents, as far back as the eye could see. But now people have choices about what they want to be. They have increased choices about who they want to be. And this increased specialization is going to lead to increased um, interconnectedness, not just between individuals, but also between regions. One of the things that kickstarts the market revolution is the invention by Eli Whitney in 1793 of uh, what is probably simultaneously the greatest thing ever to happen to America and the worst thing ever to happen to America. And of course, I'm referring to the cotton gin. Prior to the invention of the cotton gin, cotton was a luxury fabric. 
The problem with cotton was that he had to pick out these sticky little seeds. He had to separate them from the fiber. And that was incredibly labor-intensive. It took one person a whole day to clean a pound of cotton prior to the cotton gin. After the invention of the cotton gin, one person using this machine could clean 50 pounds of cotton a day. So suddenly cotton, which had, had once been uh, a fabric of the super wealthy, suddenly cotton was a fabric of the common man and woman. Suddenly cotton was available um, to everyone. And suddenly cotton was the number one source of America's GDP. It accounted for 60% of all of our exports by the 1850s. Cotton was to America as oil is to Saudi Arabia. And yet, while the cotton gin saved a great deal of labor as far as separating out these seeds, the cotton gin also created a demand for more slave labor. Because more and more people wanted to grow this incredibly popular, incredibly lucrative crop. And this occurred, in many respects, at the most tragic time for the people who were unfortunate enough to be enslaved in America. Because in the years after the American Revolution, many of the states in the North began to try to take seriously the promises of 1776 and gradually emancipate slaves. And the states that did that, this, they all had somewhat different plans. Some promised to emancipate all slaves after a certain date. Some promised to emancipate all slaves born after a certain date when they reached a certain age. But all put slavery within their own borders on a course toward extinction. And yet if you were a slaveholder in a northern state and you knew that at a certain time, on a certain date, your human property would no longer be your property. If you had no moral qualms about holding these human beings as slaves, you would have few, human, few qualms about selling them outside of the borders of your state. In New York, for example, prior to emancipation, two-thirds of all the people who had been enslaved were sold south, where the demand for slave labor was growing as never before. So what had once been the, the national problem of slavery now very quickly was becoming the peculiar institution of the American South. The development of cotton cultivation in the South, of course, will have consequences for the North. In the South, Americans uh, will grow cotton. In the North, that cotton will be spun into textiles. The uh, cotton boom generates uh, capital as well as uh, incentives for greater industrialization in the northern states. And so America, which had once had uh, an economy that was, was fairly consistent from region to region, it was almost universally agricultural, now had a sectionalized economy where the South was dedicated to agriculture as never before, and the North was dedicated increasingly toward industry. And northerners lobbied the national government for tariffs, for protective tariff 
that would allow them to sell more of what they made. There's a guy uh, who made clocks in New Haven, Connecticut, for example, a man named Chauncey Jerome. And to make clocks, that was no easy task, but Chauncey Jerome, he was a pretty good innovator. Um, he realized that rather than assembling clocks clock by clock, rather than having you know, specialized artisans with all the knowledge necessary to put together a clock, what if you could break that down? What if you could have some people putting the hands on the clock, other people installing the gears of the clock, other people making the cabinet for the clock? What if you had interchangeable parts? Suddenly clocks were a status symbol. Suddenly clocks were available to the masses. But the first real innovators of such things weren't people like Chauncey Jerome in America. They were people in places like Britain and France. And let's just say hypothetically that it would cost Chauncey Jerome $10 to make a good clock. But he was new at this. And the British, they'd been up and running for a while. A British clock that was equally good might cost only $8. Chauncey Jerome and others like him would say there should be a tariff. There should be a tariff on those British clocks. Let's put a $4 tariff on that $8 British clock. What would the British clock then cost? $12. Previously, Chauncey Jerome, he could make a $10 clock. What would his clock now cost? $11.50, right? Because he could increase his price, pocket the difference, and sell more clocks. For Chauncey Jerome, this is a fantastic deal. For consumers of clocks, not so much. For people in the American South who are exporting their cotton, was this a good deal? Not at all because not only did they have to pay more for manufactured goods, but what would European nations do in retaliation? They would put a tariff on what we sent to them, making their cotton more expensive in Europe, making it more difficult for Europeans to buy as much cotton, decreasing their profits. This ultimately would lead to a real crisis during the administration of President Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was from the South, but his great identity was with the nation. And when his vice president, John C. Calhoun's state of South Carolina, began to question the tariff, when it began to question the constitutionality of the tariff, there was a crisis at hand. There's a famous uh, Jefferson Day dinner attended by both Jackson and John C. Calhoun, his vice president. And uh, Jackson rose up and he gave a toast. He said, the union, it must be preserved. And there's a real fear that if South Carolina could opt out of, could declare unconstitutional one federal law, it essentially could, could opt out of all federal laws. What kind of union is that? But then John C. Calhoun rose up, and he raised his glass, and he said, the union next to our liberties, most dear. Sort of the classic conundrum 
of the 19th century. Well, John C. Calhoun, this young, handsome man, John C. Calhoun discovered that serving as Andrew Jackson's uh, vice president was a really trying sort of ordeal. And uh, he did not fare well under this burden. In fact, he was utterly transformed. <laughs> and in many respects, it's horrifying, I know. <laughs> in many respects, so was America. We've entered into this age, we've entered into this period where the economy has become specialized enough, where it has become fragmented enough that there are opportunities for real rent-seeking to take place. There are opportunities for special interests to lobby for subsidies that give them great concentrated benefits at the diffused cost to the rest of the nation. And these different economic interests in this belief that there should be an economic policy for the United States government. This is one of the things that begins to tear the nation apart as we march down the road to the Civil War. The United States had been uh, a land where slavery was allowed everywhere at the time of the American Revolution. Happily, as I've mentioned, in the years after, states north of the Mason-Dixon line began to um, pass acts of emancipation. And yet, as America expanded westward, the line between states that allowed slavery and states that prohibited it was drawn further west as well. First with the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, saying that slavery could exist south of the Ohio River but not north. Again, with the Missouri Compromise that allowed slavery in Missouri, but said that it shouldn't exist south, uh, or it should only exist south of the border of Missouri as you drew the line west. As you uh, move toward the Compromise of 1850, you have California admitted as a free state, but popular sovereignty of vote will determine the status of slavery in the territories of Utah and New Mexico. As you look at the, uh, the Kansas and Nebraska Act in 1854, that territory is divided up into two, and popular sovereignty will determine whether slavery will be allowed in Kansas, which under the terms of the Missouri Compromise should have been uh, you know, barred to slave labor. As America starts to see the map become increasingly clear, as America gets toward the end game of determining who will be in the majority, who will have the largest number of states, the free north or the slaveholding south, the stakes seem to get higher and higher, and tensions continue to rise until finally, in the election of 1860, you see in a four-way race the election of Abraham Lincoln, who was not even on the ballot in 10 southern states because no one would have signed petitions to get him on the ballot. Abraham Lincoln represents a new party in America, the Republican Party, 
which was against the expansion of slavery into new territories. With the opposition to Abraham Lincoln fragmented, Lincoln takes the majority of the electoral votes. And Lincoln's election, of course, is going to spark the Civil War. In December of 1860, South Carolina becomes the first of the southern states to succeed. More will follow in uh, the months to come. The Charleston Mercury um, in November of 1860, immediately after Lincoln's election, invokes the spirit of the American Revolution. It says, the tea has been thrown overboard. The revolution of 1860 has been initiated. Of course, what really uh, initiates the Civil War is, is President Lincoln's refusal to withdraw federal troops from Fort Sumter off the coast of South Carolina. South Carolina, now considering itself independent of the United States, says that island is part of South Carolina and this foreign army must evacuate it. Lincoln refused. South Carolina initiated uh, hostilities. The uh, Union troops on Fort Sumter returned fire, and the Civil War began. And interestingly, a number of states, like Virginia and North Carolina, which had resisted the impulse to secede from the Union after these hostilities commenced, they dropped away as well. And Abraham Lincoln found himself uh, president of states that were no longer united. He was president of states that were on the verge of falling utterly apart. And Lincoln would do pretty much anything to preserve the Union. For him, it seems almost as if the Union is less uh, a means to an end greater than itself, but a means in and of itself, and an end of an in and of itself. As Lincoln wrote in 1862, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And all those things are exactly the things that Lincoln tried during the course of the Civil War. Lincoln at first and Republicans at first tried to assure the South that they would never, um, never uh, outlaw slavery where it currently existed. There was proposed the Crittenden Compromise, which included an a, uh, unamendable amendment. I don't know how this is constitutionally possible, but an, an amendment that would be added and could never be removed that would forever allow slavery to exist where it currently existed. But the South, by this point, wasn't interested in compromise. The South, by this point, had already invested its hopes in, the, in a new, separate, Confederate future. And so Lincoln, by the time the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, resolved to free some slaves, but not others. The Emancipation Proclamation um, freed all the slaves in the territory that the Union did not control, which of course means that the Emancipation Proclamation, at least immediately, didn't free any slaves. And Lincoln took care not to free any slaves in places that the Union did control, like Tennessee, which seceded but was quickly conquered by the Union Army. 
Lincoln also didn't want to threaten slaveholders in, in Union border states like Kentucky or Maryland. But those states that were in insurrection against the United States, as soon as they were reconquered, Lincoln said, the slaves there would be emancipated. And then, of course, finally, at the end of the Civil War, an amendment to the Constitution would finally abolish slavery throughout the United States. A war that began as a war for union on the part of the North, or independence on the part of the South. By the end, it had become a war of liberation for the North. Liberation for slaves, liberation for the United States from slavery. And people understood this. Captain Henry Howell, the United States Army, for example, said every soldier knows he is fighting not only for his own liberty, but even more for the liberty of the whole human race for all time to come. If America is truly the last best hope on earth, if America is truly the exemplar of, of freedom for mankind, certainly it can't permit slavery to exist. And certainly it didn't. But at what a terrible, terrible cost. During the course of the Civil War, more than 600,000 Americans died. 600,000. And the cost could be measured not only in human terms, but also in terms of uh, the national treasure that was spent to make this happen. The cost of the Civil War, I would argue, is still be being felt. Because, among other things, while it succeeded in liberating America from slavery, while it succeeded in securing the liberty of people who had been once held as slaves, it created a new larger federal edifice than one that the framers of the Constitution had ever imagined. And it installed in Washington in power, for all practical terms, for decades, the Republican Party of the North. And the Republican Party of the North continued to have high tariffs, which continued to generate a great deal of revenue, which the Republican Party of the North turned into America's first real social welfare program. Um, pensions to veterans and aid to the many widows and orphans of those Union veterans. So certainly uh, an opportunity to provide material help uh, to people who had lost so much during this terrible conflict. But more cynically, can be viewed as a way to transfer wealth to the political supporters of the Northern Republicans. And also the beginnings of calls for broader and greater and permanent social welfare programs. All this coming at a time when increasingly people are beginning to think that the government, that central planning, can marshal resources, can make big decisions, can pull the levers of the economy for the greater good of all. 
the, the notion that uh, this would happen, I think, is one of the greatest causes um, or one of the greatest uh, burdens that America labors under as a result of the Civil War. James Madison pointed out in 1795, I think very correctly, of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it compromises and develops the germ of every other. Violations of civil liberty, standing armies, but debts and taxes as well. And the growth of the state during the course of the Civil War is something that will not be beaten back. And in the early 20th century, you have uh, more and more individuals rising up and calling for the emulation of the principles of scientific management pioneered by people like Frederick, Frederick Winslow Taylor, which I would say are inherently um, elitist. Taylor himself writes in uh, his work on scientific management, it is only through enforced standardization of methods, enforced adoption of the best implements and working conditions, and enforced cooperation that this faster work can be assured. And the duty of enforcing the adoption of standards and enforcing this co cooperation rests with management alone. The idea was to devise a system for factories that would bring about maximum efficiency. Why limit it to factories? Why not um, impose the system of efficiency, of command and control on the economy at large? Certainly the attitudes of people like Taylor were held by many people who would call themselves the progressives of the early 20th century. As Taylor said, I can say without the slightest hesitation that the science of handling pig iron is so great that the man who is physically able to handle pig iron and is sufficiently phlegmatic and stupid to choose this for his occupation is rarely able to comprehend the science of handling pig iron. There are the elite, the wise, the anointed who should run things, who should simplify things, who should manage things for the benefit of the yokels who lack the intellectual capacity to manage their own lives. And this is the proposition that underlies progressivism. Teddy Roosevelt is a hero to many, not so much to me. This is a man of significant girth who never figured out that it wasn't slimming to stand by large globes. <laughs> and who increasingly and unabashedly turned to government to make decisions for Americans. Oftentimes in response to, to crises, but oftentimes allowing for the industries that he purported to regulate to capture the laws that were regulating those industries. The special interests writing their own rules sometimes falsely reassuring consumers that problems had been addressed, and foreclosing market responses where people voluntarily could have assured, for example, the quality of meats through competing different inspection regimes. It's not a crazy thing to think that private entities could reassure the public 
about consumer quality. For example, Underwriter Laboratories was established in the 1890s to assure the safety of electric products. Thank goodness it was established when it was established. Had they waited another 10 or 15 years, the government would have done it. Increasingly, people are going to say if there's a problem that's identified, the government should do something. Increasingly, people are going to trust great powers to the government. Increasingly, supposedly, great contrasts in politics between people like Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson are really just going to amount to different flavors of the same exact thing. If, if, if Roosevelt increased the power and scope of government, certainly Woodrow Wilson did the same thing, especially during the course of the First World War, where increasingly government is, is, is going to make economic decisions, put all of our might, all of our resources behind this war, where increasingly government is going to sacrifice civil liberties through things like the Sedition Act, which actually put in jail a man who produced a play that incited hatred of one of our wartime allies, a seditious and subversive play called The Spirit of 76. Man went to jail for that. And so the progressive era, I think, is part of a long story for the 20th century that leads us straight to the New Deal, where increasingly you have the philosophy of command and control, where increasingly you have the belief in a cult of expertise, where increasingly you, you turn to the government to make decisions about the market. Increasingly, America is going to see the power of the state grow and grow and grow. And this happens during the Depression. It happens during the Second World War. It will happen again during the Great Society. That's uh, Lyndon Johnson giving you Medicare. And again, these supposedly big contrasts between presidents like Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson don't really amount to much. There's Lyndon Johnson and there's Richard Nixon. Such a laughable photo. But, but Nixon, of course, during his presidency, instituted wage and price controls. The government began to take on new and broader and greater responsibilities, more unflinchingly, more reflexively, until finally in the 1970s, things began to change. Finally, perhaps not coincidentally, when groups like the Cato Institute started to form. You begin to see deregulation of airlines under the Carter administration. You begin to see things like Ronald Reagan's 1980 election campaign, where he said that government isn't the solution, government is the problem. You begin to see a return to the market, gradual, tentative, incomplete, insufficient. But you begin to see people begin to dig in their heels and say that the state has gone too far. The state does not possess the answer. That the Constitution never intended to empower a state that is this large, that can do so much. 
The gains that have been made in the past 30 years, of course, are, are faltering. They can be fleeting. As Tom pointed out so, so wisely yesterday, you can't predict the direction of the future. You can't predict uh, a singular course of progress. You have to expect that there will be setbacks. But still, there is this one thing. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. There still there is this one thing that America has going for it. We are actually a nation that was founded around a set of principles. We were a nation that has a reason to exist. When you think about other parts of the world, great. I mean, I love other parts of the world. Wonderful, you know, people from other parts of the world. But how lucky people are in America, you know, wherever their ancestors come from, that they got here, a nation that was founded for a purpose. I don't know why Germany exists. I don't know why China exists. I don't know really why England exists. These nations just sort of congeal over time. But I know why America exists. And Americans, fundamentally, know why America exists. It says so right there on the parchment of the Declaration of Independence. America exists to protect and preserve individual liberty. That is what our country's purpose is. That's what our government is supposed to do. And that's what Americans have, have, have the great benefit of being able to return to and remind each other of. Thank you very much.